Hi, and welcome to Drawing Inspiration. I am your host, Mike Henley. Episode 50, Combining Digital Visual Journalism and Activism, with cartoonist Liza Donnelly. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. I hope you're doing well. I'm going to keep uh, the updates pretty short this week, and then we'll get right into the interview with uh, Liza Donnelly. So I wanted to lead by thanking a new Patreon member, and that is Stacy from New Zealand. Uh, Stacy's an artist and recently sent me a message about how the podcast inspired her to have a stall at a recent uh, artist alley where she did quite well. So I'm really glad that uh, the podcast has had an impact on your journey, Stacy, and I'm hopeful that you will have continued success. I do look forward to seeing uh, more of your work. So uh, I think that's fantastic. I love hearing these stories and hearing the impact that the podcast and these conversations are having on on your creative journey, on your life. So uh, please keep sharing. I think it's uh, incredible. And so if you would like to support the show, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash podcast, And there are three tiers available. All the uh, proceeds generated from that go into kind of keeping the show going with regard to the hosting and um, equipment and all that kind of stuff. So I appreciate everyone who's contributed uh, to the podcast through Patreon. I couldn't really do this without you, so thank you so much. So in the last uh, week or so, I launched the March edition of my newsletter. You can find a link for that in the show notes. I also link to it from my uh, Twitter and Instagram profiles. In this edition, I talked about kind of spring and the inspiration behind the duck uh, drawings I've done and a little bit of a story there and the work I do in the spring to kind of organize the houses for these ducks that come and frequent our pond. I just wanted to give you kind of a bit of a background on some of that and what's involved. And once again, this is uh, part of the kind of stories behind the art. I talk about sharpeners and um, latest movies and books that uh, I've been watching and reading. So if you're interested, you can find a link to the newsletter on mikehenley.com. It's probably the easiest way to get there, and you can subscribe, and then you'll get access to the next newsletter coming out in a month. So I don't really, at this point, send out any other emails than just the newsletter itself, so I'm not going to be spamming you (laughs) with a bunch of stuff. And I try to make this an interesting bit of content that you can flip through on a weekend, get a bit more information on on what I do as, as a creative and what inspires me, and maybe there's something in there that you can walk away with. So anyway, keep an eye out for that. On the art front, I've been doing a lot more sketching on my iPad. I'm working on a small commission I've been asked to do of cardinals, so not the religious cardinal, but the bird. So I've been mocking these up on the iPad because it helps me to kind of get a sense of the shape and the layout and everything else and the colors. So it's uh, it's quite helpful for me to, to kind of sketch things out fairly quickly rather than using pencil in something like this. And my hope, the actual endpoint for these commissions is going to be either watercolor or colored pencil. So I haven't decided which one, but uh, I'm going to probably, I think, going to try watercolor first. And I don't like watercolor, so I don't know how this is going to go, but I'm going to give that a shot and see how that works out. And if not, I may switch to colored pencils. So I'm going to be doing that in the next week or so, and I'll be posting some work in progress pictures up on my Instagram. So if you want to see how that goes along, I may do a couple of live draws or live paints around that. I've been doing a few more of those recently, so I tend to do them on Instagram, although I'm going to be doing a few sessions on Twitch because I can do a little bit more uh, in sharing kind of what I'm working on and some stories and um, some images and things like that. So I may do a couple of Twitch sessions coming up in the next week or so. So the other image I've been working on is a snapping turtle. 
And so this was a capture from a GoPro video that I had shot. And I'm about five hours into this. This is a graphite piece that I've been working on. It's nine inches by 12 inches. And I've got about, I'm going to say three hours left. It depends how much more I put in it. I'm going to put a, a rock shelf off to one side, I think. I've already brought in a crayfish and a a small uh, kind of baby bass <laughs> as dinner for the, the turtle, just to increase kind of the, uh, the interactions here a little bit, the interest. I may drop another one or two things in there as well. I'm not sure yet. But uh, depending on how much more I add in, I'll be, uh, I think, probably another three hours. I really like this. This is a lot more involved than normal pieces I've done. And, you know, the first question I've gotten, I think, is, is what pencils am I using? I'm using all the pencils. And so I'm using my GraphGear 1000s with the 2B lead. I'm using my uh, two millimeter Stadler clutch pencils. And I'm using a bit of graphite dust with a brush to kind of get those light rays above the shell as well. And I'm using a, uh, uh, like a blending stump to, uh, to achieve some of that, uh, some of the softness. So I'm using it all to try and, uh, to get this to where I think I want it to be. And I really like this. I like having something on my desk that I can just go back to and, and continue with where I left off as opposed to the smaller sketches I've been doing. So it's been cool. I've posted a few updates on my Instagram just to show you where things are at. And so probably in the next week or so, I'll have that complete and then I'll post a final image. So by the way, I've been uh, talking about a giveaway for the last, I think, couple of shows, and I just haven't gotten around to it. I wanted to figure out the strategy best for this, and I think I've got that sorted out. So keep an eye on Instagram in the next week, and you can kind of follow me there, and I'll be giving away a couple of prints. And it's going to be fairly easy. I'm not going to ask you to, uh, <laughs> to sign your life away to do this. It'll be fairly easy. I don't like uh, all the rules that people put into some of, some of these giveaways, so this will be fairly simple. And then you'll have a chance to uh, to win a print, and I'll send it to you wherever you are in the world. So uh, yeah, check that out. And I think that's it for updates. So let's uh, head into this uh, wonderful. So let's head into this wonderful interview, this conversation I had with Liza Donnelly. She was just a, a fantastic person to speak to. She's had so much experience in in being a cartoonist in a world. To be honest, I know nothing about, knew nothing about. And um, I really found it enlightening, and I really never put much thought into it, but um, I just, she's such a lovely person, and she's done so much, not just in cartooning, but in uh, supporting freedom of speech and women's rights, and I know you're going to love this uh, conversation. So stay tuned, and here we go into the interview. I discovered my guest this week through a shared follower when he flagged me about her live draws. I was immediately drawn to her wonderful cartoons, but also the way she was able to inform and engage her audience while creating some truly thoughtful art. Liza Donnelly has had her work appear in publications and news media around the world from The New Yorker to Cosmopolitan and so many others. She has written numerous books and I would highly recommend checking out her TEDx videos. Liza has also traveled the world as a cultural envoy for the US State Department to speak about freedom of speech, cartoons, and women's rights. To talk about her creative journey, it is my pleasure to welcome to the Drawing Inspiration podcast, Liza Donnelly. Hi Liza, how are you? I'm great, hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. You know, I'm so honored to have you here. Your your bio is incredible. I was immediately captivated by your cartoons, but then I went and read through uh, your bio. And even when I was trying to decide which publications, it was kind of tough to uh, to narrow it down to <laughs> two or three. Well, 
Thank you. I mean, uh, everybody picks their favorite. I mean, they, they pick the New Yorker first, but then they pick whatever they think is uh, exciting for them. And that's great. You know, I, I'm really interested in cartooning. And I think that you would call yourself a cartoonist. Mm-hmm. And you've been doing this for some time. So I'd like to understand your journey and kind of where that started for you. Mm-hmm. And if you can, you know, look back to that point in time, maybe when that passion that inspiration first started for you? Well, you know, as a kid, I was always drawing like most young children do. But there was a time very specific. I remember I was homesick from school and my mother, to, you know, didn't want me to watch TV all day long. So she brought me a piece of paper and a book of cartoons by James Thurber and uh, suggested that I trace them. And I did. And uh, it got such a positive reaction from her that I kept, I just, I was hooked at that point. And um, we had the New Yorker around our house. I knew that was something that she was, she, she liked. So, and you know how at least maybe young girls like to please their mothers. I was, I like to make her smile. So that's where that started. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I remember similar emotions with my mom when I was starting to create uh, Mm -hmm. at quite a young age as well. It's, um, it's very powerful. Yeah. Did she kind of reinforce this for you as you started to to move mm-hmm. through like this is something you pursued like, like was it clear for you at that point did you ever veer from that or you, you were going to be a cartoonist and you took every every appropriate well, step to get there my first motivation of course was to make others happy with what i drew i was a really shy kid painfully shy so i could also drawing helped me stay alone in the corner without having to talk to anybody and just draw and it it was okay. Uh, and then I got known as the artist, you know, the artist in the family. And that's, that's always fun. And my mother was always buying me paper, buying me sketchbooks and encouraging me to do that. And I didn't really think about a career, but I kept doing it, just kept doing it. And then I went to college, I went to a liberal, liberal arts college, and I still wasn't thinking I'd be a cartoonist. I'm not really exactly sure when that sunk in, but I was drawing all the time, drawing cartoons all the time. And not these are not cartoons like you see in the New Yorker. They were just fun drawings of people and animals and I would make up monsters. And so they weren't cartoons with a caption. They were just drawing funny drawings. Um, And then in college uh, I was heading towards studying biology because that was my other interest. And I thought that's where I would make a living. But midway through I switched to to art and I became an art major. And in college I looked, I was looking at the New Yorker cartoons and uh, the New Yorker itself seemed to me, this was in the seventies, seemed kind of stuffy to me and old fashioned and status quo. I was a bit of a liberal, very liberal teenager. My, my boyfriend was a Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in, in high school, no less. Um, but I decided that uh, I really wanted to be a, a political cartoonist early on because I grew up in Washington, D.C. and uh, during the Watergate and civil rights movement and women's movement. And I, uh, I thought I, I'm not going to go march and in a march. I'm not that kind of person. I'm too shy. But I could maybe maybe I could help with drawings. I could become a political cartoonist. But I looked at the political cartoons and uh, I loved Gary Trudeau and Doonesbury. And I loved uh, a man named Herb Block in the Washington Post. But um, they didn't, they seemed like that you had to have a strong opinion about politics to be an editorial cartoonist. And I didn't think I had that. So I, in college, I started looking at the New Yorker more closely and, and, um, saw that they did have political cartoons and they still do, but they're different. They're slightly different political cartoons. So I set my sights on the New Yorker in college. So did that become a target for you? Like success for you was going to be at the New Yorker? 
as a cartoonist. Yes. Was that clear? Yes. It was, it was, that's, that's where I set my sights. And, um, you know, you looked at the, I looked at the cartoons and I saw a woman, uh, I didn't know she was a woman cartoonist, but I saw a cartoonist in there called, her name was Nurit Carlin. She became a friend ultimately. Her style was very simple, but sometimes quietly commenting on culture or politics. Um, and I thought, well, if, if that's in there, maybe I have a chance. And in college, I wrote to a friend of my grandmother's was was a, a writer at The New Yorker. Her name was Andy Logan. She's a woman. And so I got her address and I wrote her when I was in college. And I said, would you mind sending my drawings to the art editor? And she wrote me back and said, uh, I'd be happy to. I often talk to Mr. Lorenz, Lee Lorenz, about why there aren't more women cartoonists in the magazine and why did he think that is. And he's always looking for new talent, she said. So when she said that to me, it was the first time I'd ever thought that I my gender had anything to do with anything. I didn't, hmm. didn't think about it back then. I was, uh, how old was I? Maybe 21, but it was not, it was not something that was con- really conscious. It was not in the forefront of my mind. I just wanted to be a cartoonist. But she right. said that and it piqued my interest, um, my competitive uh, interest. And I sent the work to her and I didn't sell, of course. But after I uh, graduated from college, I started doing more and more cartoons. And I got a job in New York City at the Natural History Museum and uh, worked on cartoons at night. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I mean, it's interesting to hear that you didn't even really think that gender was an issue. You know, I was aware of, of uh, Gloria Steinem and the women's movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think... As many, maybe it's not so true now, but I think many young people, young women, enter adulthood thinking very grateful to the feminists before them, but not thinking they need it anymore, that I'm fine, I'm going to just do fine, I just want to be, I want to do this and I'll be fine, but that we know that's not true. And I think that's the way I was early in my early 20s. I I was aware, you know, my mother couldn't get a credit card and uh, on her own name and that the want ads were, were gendered, you know women jobs on one column and men jobs on the other column. So I was aware of stuff like that, but I just wanted to be a cartoonist. <laughs> right. And I've told the story before I had a, I had a book where it had, you know, choose a job and I was five years old and I wanted to be an artist, but the artist job was a woman's job, not a man's job. The oh, man's yeah. job was policeman, fireman. So I actually wrote in artist on the man's side. <laughs> <laughs> Good. And, and Good, for <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Can I just, before we, continue in, in, you know, going for the museum to um, the New Yorker. I wanted to ask you, because this came up in a previous podcast with another guest, when you were kind of associated as being the artist, right, in the family, the artist mm-hmm. in the class, mm-hmm. do you think that is a positive or negative enforcement? Do you think that you would try less if you're told that you're an artist? Do you feel that do you, do you think we perceive that differently if you're said, oh, you're the artist, oh, I'm the artist, I don't have to do this other thing, or I don't have to try hard over here? Do you think that has an impact? Mm, that's a great question. It didn't for me, I don't think. Okay. I mean, I was not a very good student. I was a, a B student. I was not like, excel, I didn't excel in, in uh, although I was good at math. <laughs> and I loved biology. So no, I don't think it didn't, didn't happen that way for me. It's a good question, though. I, I'm sure it's true of some people. I, I remember... Uh, and I've told the story multiple times in the podcast, but I was I was called an artist by my parents and kids in the class until a better artist showed up, mm. got transferred to our school, and I wasn't the artist anymore. And Ooh, that's uh, tough. It is tough. And uh, she was really good at horses. I couldn't do horses, and so <laughs> I was. <laughs> 
I was out. Um, God, but it's, uh, it's tough. It's a fragile mind. And I, um, it was until this other individual brought up this idea of artists that I was thinking, I don't know, are we, you know, are we doing it wrong for some children and calling them an artist too early Mm. and providing that comfort that maybe they choose not to, because his whole comment was around, you know, is, is talent something that is in you or is some talent, something you develop and, I, do we work as hard if we're called an artist at an early mm-hmm. age? So. It, maybe it's a little different if you're a cartoonist, uh, even though I, I was learning how to render realistically too in college because mm-hmm. I, I thought I'd be a biological illustrator was my plan for a while. Um, so I learned how to render realistically, like your wonderful drawings. You, you have great drawings. Thank you. So I, would tr- I was trying that. And it's so t- labor intensive. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, but uh, I, I wonder if, uh, because cartooning, at least maybe I was subtly aware that I was, I was unique in that I was a girl drawing cartoons. There were no other cartoonists in my class that I remember. But um, Interesting. Mm. So we'll move forward again in time to the, mm-hmm. the museum. Okay. And uh, you, had, you enjoyed that time there. Mm-hmm. Um, how long were you there? And then did you go to the New Yorker right after that? I was there three years. I, I moved to New York right after college and worked as a research assistant for a woman friend of my stepmother's. And then I uh, got a, a grant to work at the museum. I had worked at the museum uh, when in college, I took a college program in the city. And I, so I had been there before as an intern, a paid, no, it wasn't paid. It was college credit intern in the art department. So I worked there three years. It was really fun and really nice group of people. Fascinating work because it was really varied. Some of my efforts are still in the museum, which I'm very proud of. Everybody loves really? that museum. Yeah. So what kind of work did you do at the museum? Everything from helping to hang labels for things to uh, <laughs> really strange things. So, uh, well, this isn't strange, but I, I, they, somebody had created a Tibetan balcony for the Asian hall. And I had to research what they might look like, what the designs might be on these balconies. And I, and I painted them, designed it and painted them. I um, created little figurines of Genghis Khan's ancestors and somebody cast them, one of my coworkers cast them in plastic resin, and then I would paint them, and they're still hanging in there. I got to, somebody did a plaster cast of a large, I guess he's a frog, called Bufo Marinus, and I, so I was given this cast, and I had to paint it to look like the real thing, and they actually had a real live Bufo Marinus in a cardboard box that I would go and study. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What else? I did a drawing of a snake, and painted a Armenian church. So it, it was, uh, it was fun, but it was not, I looked at the artists there. Many of them are older men. They were great people. I loved them. And I got to meet some of the diorama painters before they died, but many of them seemed kind of sad. You know, I just feel like they never got the recognition they deserved when I was there. I think in previous generations, they probably did. And I didn't, uh, I didn't want to live that a sad life. I, and I also wanted to be a cartoonist really in the end. Right. So I gave up after I sold the New Yorker. I, I waited another year or so, and I I, uh, I quit that job. It was hard right. to do, hard to do. Right, but that's where you needed to be is in mm-hmm. cartooning, and so that really confirmed it for you as going through that experience. But, I don't, yeah, I don't know if you know the cartoonist Sam Gross, but I met him around that time, and he encouraged me to quit my job. He said you can't be a cartoonist part time, although now you you probably have to be. Huh. Okay, well that's something we're going to have to touch on as well. Sure. So what was it like? Uh, starting at the New Yorker, I was thrilled. Uh, were you floating a- across the ground as you I was in the first I w- time? Well, I, when, what happened was I um, 
what you do. I don't know if your listeners know the routine, but uh, and somewhere in those early years, I I heard about the routine, how you submit. And back then, in the late 70s, you would drop off your batch of cartoons, which is somewhere between eight and 20. I usually did about 10. And um, you could you could submit as many as you want. And then you submit it in the office, or you can mail it in, and then come back the next week and pick up the rejects. And then one week, so I did that for a couple of years, every week. And I one week I went in and they, I got the, the receptionist said, uh, Mr. Lorenz wants to see you. He was the art editor. And I nearly fainted. Because I thought I'd done something wrong, um, but they wanted to buy a cartoon, and that was how it started. Huh. Mm-hmm. So, when you're submitting cartoons, are you submitting the cartoon and the caption, or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't even clear on that bit as to you know, do they submit anything to you, or is it just you know what you go create in in your area mm-hmm. <laughs> and you bring it here mm-hmm. complete, mm-hmm. right? And and so you've got to pull together the story not with just not just in the in the cartoon itself but also the words mm-hmm. your yes. choice of words and keeping it short and sweet yeah some people use they call them gag writers i hate that phrase but some people do use gag writers and and uh, even charles adams had had writers uh, not all of his work was written by somebody else but much of it was but in my generation of cartoons the new yorker there was it was a point of pride not to use writers for some reason i don't know how why that started but um, it's something that you you just didn't do or you didn't admit to it. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so you have to submit the whole cartoon and they don't tell you what to do. And this is the beauty from an artistic point of view. This is kind of a, a, the beauty of, of the, the system that they have. And it's always been like this. The magazine was founded in 1925. So it's pretty much always been like this. You have to draw a lot of cartoons to get one sold. So I'll do eight a week and I don't sell every week by any means. So you do another eight the next week and they do another eight the next week. So you're, you're drawing, you have to, it forces you to draw all the time. I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to submit every week, but it's better to keep the juices flowing. You know, if you stop, I find if you stop for a couple of weeks, you get kind of rusty. So it's just, you integrate it into your daily routine. I try, not always successful. And then uh, you, you try not to focus on what you think is like, oh, that's that's the best cartoon ever. They're going to buy that one because they, they might not. Or they probably won't. So you have to just do what you want, what you find funny, and not focus on what they might find funny and um, take it in. Because the New Yorker cartoons, the best ones, I think, are the ones that are come from the, the gut of the cartoonist. We're not really creating jokes necessarily, although they are, many of them, very funny. It's more like a worldview. Like if you know Roz Chast, she has a definite worldview. You can, you know, it's a chaste world. You know, it's a chaste. Or, or Adams is the same way, even though he used writers. And I don't. I mean, I people say they recognize my style. I'm not sure that I have an identifiable worldview in my cartoons, but I feel I feel I do. But it's harder to see. So the system is really good for forcing you to draw for yourself and learning how to be rejected. So you you never have an ongoing critique. It's no Liza. We'll buy this one. It's not like, can you tweak this one or can you change this? It's we'll buy it or we won't. So do you connect with other cartoonists and share ideas? and Or like, mm-hmm. how do you seek feedback? Or is that just something that a cartoonist does, as you say, for themselves? I don't seek feedback. And then they certainly don't give it. Although the new cartoon editor is a little bit better at giving it. And, and my first cartoon editor, Lee Lorenz, a few times they'd buy something, but he would make a suggestion about the, the arrangement in the picture, or sometimes a suggestion about the placement of the words or that kind of thing. But um, Emma, the new editor, she'll sometimes say, 
you know, I like this cartoon that you just submitted us, but I, maybe if you did this to it, David Remnick would, would be more inclined to buy it. So he's the final, he's the senior editor at the New Yorker. He's the final say on what gets bought. So that's, that's the first time I've ever had anybody say that to me. It's only happened once, but um, yeah, it's really, you have to, it's like a, I think it's really a solo endeavor. And I know new cartoonists and uh, maybe some of the people from my generation used to share their work and discuss it, but I don't, I prefer not to do that. So when you're submitting work and this could be present or past, if something happens today in the news, do you feel compelled to do cartoons around it? Like, do you feel that I have to address this thing that happened today, whether it's in the US or elsewhere in the world, or I'm not really doing my job? Do you feel that pressure to tell tell the story, the, the narrative of what's happening through your cartoons? Or do you wander and think, oh, I'm, I, I had this idea yesterday, I'm going to pursue it. So I'm just wondering the, the pressure of kind of advanced news events, what that is like for a cartoonist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's there's a good bit of that in my work. And it's I, I do so many other things too, as you know. So mm-hmm. the New Yorker has ch- and the New Yorker has changed too since I mean I've done a lot of politically inclined cartoons for them over the years, but now they don't tend to buy those from me and they and because I primarily am published in the magazine, not online. They do more political cartoons in their daily cartoon on their website. And they don't, for some reason, unbeknownst to me, they don't buy my political cartoons. So it's sad. I don't, I wish I they would, but that's you know you have to roll with the punches. Right. But um, when there's something in the culture too, I, I try to draw about it. And, and in the, in the cartoons I send to them, I do try to touch on cultural issues, not specifically political. But you know, I'm trying to think of an example. I mean, I have done. I did something. I did a political cartoon for Emma. When she first got there, I can't remember how it's phrased, but it's usually their cartoons are usually, if they're political, they're about how politics affect people, and that, and less about commenting on Trump or commenting on Biden or commenting on the EU or something like that. And when you're thinking of these ideas, does it come to you as a as a cartoon, or does it come to you as a line, or does it vary? It varies. It's like a dance between the two, and that's. You sit down, it's work. Some people think we just overhear conversations and that's a cartoon. Um, <laughs> you have to sit down with your de- at your desk with a piece of paper or your, note- or your notebook. And what I do is I doodle and I also pull out words or phrases that I hear in the culture or, or words that just pop into my brain because it's a lot of it is um, random, random collisions of, of pictures and ideas. And so you have this page or open notebook sketchbook with all these elements and sometimes they combine in unexpected ways and you sometimes you force them to combine like you know here's a word over here that i find interesting and there's a man sitting on a beach or a a woman in a doctor's office and you try to say well would they be saying something that's related to that word yeah so that's that's how that works (laughs) it's mysterious to most of us we don't really know how it works (laughs) (laughs) but it is work um you've got to sit down and actually put some effort into it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure like you probably have opportunities where maybe you're out and about for whatever reason and something pops in your head and you make a mm-hmm. note of it or whatever the case, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I find really interesting about cartoons overall, but more specifically yours, is is an appropriate use of of line and, and shading. Like it's like for me, who's you've seen my pieces where I spend probably way too much time with pencil <laughs> trying to get the <laughs> detail just right. You are able to, through a few lines, and that, I guess, what was Thurber was famous for, right, is is mm-hmm. just a little 
as possible. But how do you balance that? Do you think about like what happens in your mind when you're putting a piece together? Do you think I've got a I've got to have no more than two characters or there, there's a tree here. I don't, I want to remove it. I want to show that this is busy. Like how do you put a scene together in a way that tells what you want to tell without going into too much detail? That's I know really, that's a really yeah. broad question, but no, it's not, but it's uh, it's, I'm trying to think of how to explain it because everybody, every cartoonist is different. Cause I, there's many cartoonists who, whose work depends on detail and that's part of the, the funny part of it. And that's one, I mean, sorry, one of the funny elements of it. Right. There's a, there was a woman in the, in the seventies who drew for the New York, oh no, eighties, who drew for the New Yorker, um, Anne McCarthy. And Lee Lorenz once said that one thing that's so funny about her work is they, they're puns. Her cartoons were puns, but she, her work was like yours, very detailed cross-hatching, ink cross-hatching incredibly detailed and he said that's what made it funny was that she spent you know the idea that she spent so much time just for this pun so her work was unique that way i don't know so yeah as a cartoonist you're 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 the set designer the choreographer the costume designer the casting director and the script screenwriter script writer you have to figure out obviously it depends so that's why it's a dance between the words and the and the drawing it's you'll sometimes have like I'll, i'll come up with a with all that random combining that I was just talking about, you'll come up with, Oh, this is a good way to go. And I don't, can't tell you how I know that, but I guess experience helps somewhat that I, that I think, well, this, this, there's something here. You remember David Letterman when he, do you ever, did you used to watch yes. him? Oh, yes. like, is this something? Is this something? <laughs> That's how cartoonists work. And you have a gut feeling there is something here. So you start drawing it and then you realize, Oh no, it should be, you know, two elephants talking, not, not two to birds or whatever, to people. And you just sort of work it through and place them where they should be and not make the location too distracting unless the location is part of the joke. Sometimes the joke, sometimes, sometimes that's what makes the joke, the location or right. who the people are. So it's, it's really a, a strange process. You know, I'm ever since your work was identified to me, I, I look at it as an artist in thinking, you know, I'm looking at the the first one on your site uh, where it says, you're, you know, your chances of hailing a cab are better if you go to the curb. And I look at that and I'm thinking, well, yeah, you probably wouldn't want to just, dis- and, and I'll post a link to this in the show notes. So, mm-hmm. you know, the people listening could actually see it at some point. Yeah. Uh, and, and that'll be the same for anything that you mentioned. I'll include it in the show notes. But, you know, that, that piece of art that's above their bed, that shouldn't be detailed as it's distracting from what you're trying right. to, to mm-hmm. tell. And with the clothes kind of strewn across the room, there's an opportunity to understand maybe the first five minutes or the the first hour or whatever mm-hmm. before the event. So mm-hmm. I think what I really enjoy about going through your pieces is that, and I've said this about other artists, but I really enjoy it with the way you've done it, that while it's a point in time cartoon, the context spans much, it it, it, it covers a larger time period in the way that you've oh, that's great. constructed yes. the scene. I often say that that's great. You picked that up that, that a single panel cartoon is, has a, it, you have to create a history. There's is this people who are talking, they have something happened before what you're seeing and, and after it's you're picking that one moment. Yeah. It's so fun to look at the pieces and think about how would I do it differently? And I can't even wrap my mind around this because I'm <laughs> thinking, <laughs> I, I, I look at this and I'm thinking I would probably draw those lockers with more detail. Um, <laughs> you know, I would, I would make the picture on the wall more detailed, but once again, you're just trying to focus on the story. Like there's one, I, I forget where I, there was one that looks like a kitchen scene and it's more crowded than your normal 
images that you do. And so it's not that you're consistently you know, reducing the elements, but the kitchen scene is a lot more crowded. There's more chairs compared to, you know, the scene with the, the two people and their little, um, uh, their little slippers yeah. looking at each other. Right. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Cause I, uh, my style, my style hasn't changed that my people still look pretty much the same, but over the years I have shifted one way and then back to the other way. Like my early cartoons, I don't know if they're in on my website, but the first one I had printed was a very simple line drawing of a man walking down the street. It's multi, it's, it's a, paneled cartoon there's no boxes but it's a multi-panel cartoon and mm-hmm. then and i did a, a number of those for the new yorker back then and they were very simple line drawings and that was my origins and then i guess sometimes for some reason in the seven, in the 90s i started getting more detailed and used heavier wash now i'm back to trying to be as minimal as possible because the ones that emma is buying right now are very simple i'm trying to get back to my roots <laughs> <laughs> When you initially got into The New Yorker, you were doing this with pencil and ink and so on and so forth. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you talk through that and whether you're still doing it that way? Because we'll get into your digital pieces as well and your digital illustrations. Mm-hmm. But I assume you started that way. And, and what tools did you use at the time? And wh- when did things start to change for you? Mm-hmm. I believe my process back in those first cartoons, I would make sketches of the the idea and then use a light box would guess that your listeners know what that is, right? Maybe we should explain it anyways, because mm-hmm. some people may not. Mm-hmm. It's a, a box <laughs> that has lights, lights in it. And it's got a, what's a plastic, um, like an opaque, yeah, opaque plexiglass or something, plexiglass surface yeah. on it. And you turn it on and the light shines up and you could put your sketch on, on that light box. And then your good paper, your bond or whatever you're using on top and tape it down and you can trace, you can see the the sketch from coming up through the bond, and you can trace in ink your sketch. And so that's what I did, and I still do that with my New Yorker cartoons. It, trace is a deceptive word because I'm not like, you know, carefully following each line. It's more like a general suggestion for where I want to go with the person or the the lampshade or whatever. Because um, right. I try, and I often for a finished art, like when the New Yorker buys one. And they say, we, we want this. I have to do the finished drawing on ink and good paper. And I sometimes have to do it numerous times, depending on the idea, because I, I don't want it to look studied and stiff. I want it to be like like I just dashed it off. <laughs> I still do it that way. Although in, ni- in 2017, I broke my right arm and I couldn't draw. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, it was weird. But I had an iPad and I learned that I could draw with strange drawings with my iPad. I asked Emma, she had just started at the New Yorker. I said, can I send you a batch of left-hand drawings? No, I'm sorry, drawing my left hand. Left-hand drawings. She said, sure. And I did, and she loved them. So they bought one of those left-handed drawings, and I did the finish on my iPad. Because I, I don't know if you've worked with an iPad, but it's yes. it's easy to correct your mistakes quickly. You know, you make a mark, and that's not right. You make another mark, that's not right. You make another mark, that's not right. So if you're trying to draw with your non-dominant hand, it's easier to do with an iPad. So Right. Mm-hmm. And are you using uh, Procreate or just the built-in app? Like, what are you drawing with mm-hmm. on the iPad? I'm drawing with a, an app called Paper. Okay. Um, and it was owned by a company called 53, but now it's owned by WeTransfer. And it's extremely basic, but intuitive. And I love it. Excellent. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've played with Paper. I tend to do most of my stuff in Procreate, but mm-hmm. um, I just get obsessed over the different brushes and the details and stuff <laughs> like that once again. But yeah, it's, yeah Procreate is... Uh, or drawing the iPad is fantastic, I think. Yeah, I get intimidated by Procreate and 
I, too many options. <laughs> you know? It is. I, I think once you get your brush sorted out, it's great because the whole interface disappears and you can just draw. But it's choosing the right brush because I've recently gone back into drawing on the iPad mm -hmm. with Procreate. And I realized that I bought a bunch of brush packs that I haven't used. And it's like, hmm, I need something that's watercolor. <laughs> and I've got like 60 watercolor, or maybe more than that, watercolor type brushes. And it's like, wow. I don't know which one to choose. It is fun. Do you, so you're drawing a little bit on the iPad, but you're still doing the transfer with the light box. For a finished drawing. Okay. My batches each week when I send in, I do on my iPad and I do those straight. I don't, there's no like sketch beforehand. I just, and that's, you know, that's really how I wish I could do it on paper. And I do that as when we talk about my live drawing, I am doing that now, but I still get nervous to do that with my New Yorker finishes. Right. So I don't do my batches, the rough drawings on with the light box. It's only the, the final finished drawing. And so when you're doing the analog drawings on paper uh, and you're doing wash on those, is that ink that you're using? Like what are your tools and kind of, like are you and, and when you're doing your lines, are you doing that with like an ink brush or a fountain mm -hmm. pen, or what are you do using as a matter of tools? I use and I've always done this is is a a, a Crowquill pen, a Hunt 107. Although I have other ones as well, but the Hunt 107 nib has been good to me, so I, I'm comfortable with it. And Higgins Black Magic ink. Okay. And uh, for the washes, I'm still you know even at this stage, I'm still not sure if I like ink you know to water down ink. Or I've just found this black graphite cake. Have you you've seen these? And it just you hit water on it, and your brush is loaded with ink. Oh, interesting. And I've um, used water soluble graphite, but I have not. Uh, it's used probably that what things. that is, and you can use it on your brush. It's a cake, a little square cake. Interesting. Or yeah. black watercolor. I don't. I still don't know the difference between the three in terms of quality of the black. Right. The washes and do when you send your art in. So you're sending the physical pieces in. Do they send them back to you? Like, do you if if they don't buy them? Uh, I don't send them in anymore anymore. Oh, um, so you just I scan them. Okay, and I keep them. But in the back when they scanning first became something, they didn't want us to scan them. They they had much better scanners at the New Yorker, so you would have to send it in, and they would scan it, and then and then for a while there was a she's a friend now, a really wonderful woman who handled all the artwork. She was Bob Mankoff's assistant. He was the previous cartoon editor. And she would handle all the artwork and keep it safe for you. And they would, what I'm trying to think of, uh, sell it, you know, not sell. They, you, they would sell original art if, if somebody wanted it with your permission. But they also would do it to sell it to secondary markets. And so when you're doing a piece for The New Yorker and you send it in, that piece is kind of fir first rights of kind of refusal, maybe, like of a better words, for your art. Like when you submit it to The New Yorker, you can't submit the same piece elsewhere, right? right? Like you right. are working with The New Yorker, they get the mm -hmm. piece. If they reject it, can you or have you ever yeah. distributed yes. elsewhere? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. okay. I just wasn't sure about the process. So that's, uh, that's helpful mm -hmm. understanding. Yeah. So in doing some of the work you have in the past, what cartoon comes to mind? And, you know, I'm sure there's quite a few, but it had the kind of biggest impact to you and, and you know, emotionally helped you mm -hmm. in kind of getting it down on paper. And I know that, you know, you're based in the US. So, you know, things like 9-11, which impacted you as well as the rest of the world. But then there was um, the Charlie Hebdo mm -hmm. incident in, in France, which directly impacted your profession. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, is there a piece or two that were quite memorable for you that that maybe provided you some degree of healing? Well, 9-11, uh, when that happened, like most... Uh, other Americans, we were also in shock that we, many of us were reevaluating our life choices, right? And I um, felt nothing was funny. And what was I doing? 
I, th- I wanted to become a teacher, perhaps. I just didn't, I was questioning cartooning. And uh, I still was doing drawings around that time, but um, I sent one into the New Yorker and it was about 9-11 and, it, and uh, they bought it and ran it. And I felt, okay, I'm back on track. That's, I felt like I'd contributed to what was happening. And um, it was, uh, you can probably show your readers this one. But it was a little girl talking to her father. He's sitting in front of the TV and he's got newspapers all around him. And and she's saying, uh, Daddy, can I stop being worried now? And uh, that's how we felt, remember? It's uh, mm-hmm. just like we joined the rest of the world in, in having to deal with terrorism and worrying. So anyway, that really helped me. And I d- vowed to do more political cartoons from there on out. And that's also around the same time that the internet started taking off. So I did more political cartoons for other sites too, different kinds of cartoons. Interesting. I mean, you could run that today and be uh, applicable to the pandemic oh, as God, well. Oh God, I know. Yeah, I know. It's it's crazy. My, my daughters would have said that to me so many times. Yeah. And I did one subsequently, they didn't buy it because I think it's too close. It was a, a black parent and child saying the same child saying the same thing. I think it was around, right. um, it wasn't during the Black Lives Matter. It was some other incident before that, but yeah. Can you recall like not so much a creative block, but maybe a, a cartoon that was that was hard to draw, that was a, a challenge. I mean, maybe that was the one for nine eleven. But mm-hmm. you know, is has there been one that you felt you needed to get out, or you felt you needed to because of some type of social responsibility in telling the story as mm-hmm. a cartoonist? Well, um, not for the New Yorker. I can't right off the bat think of anything like that that I did for the New Yorker. But uh, when I was doing more and more political cartoons online and. Uh, I was doing cartoons that I knew the New Yorker wouldn't buy because if, if they're not a standard New Yorker cartoon, I don't have to show it to them first. I can do it on my own and sell it to somebody else. Okay. So this, the one I'm thinking of is uh, when in 2016, when, when we heard about the Billy Bush tapes, the Trump tapes on the, on the, on the bus, mm-hmm. and he said that thing about women, I was so shocked and upset and he wasn't even president yet. <laughs> Uh, but it looked like he was going to be the nominee, that I had to draw it. And it was a really hard drawing to do, was a woman being grabbed by the by Trump. Because I felt, as I was drawing this, I felt like I was being grabbed. And uh, it was hard to draw. But right. I do a lot of political cartoons about women's rights and feminism around the world. I don't know if we're going to talk about that. but Yes, for sure we are. Those, I think, are important to draw. How do you, how do you manage that emotionally when you're doing your cartoons because you weave so much humor into what you say. And balancing that humor against some type of social commentary can be hard based on the event, but also can be hard because you had a bad day or whatever the case. So how, you know, it's one thing to have the drawing skill, but I think, you know, it's the other bit of managing that mindset day to day to think I've got to be clever. (laughs) And maybe out of the 10 I'm submitting, I felt I was clever with most of them except these two, but I need to submit them anyway. So mm-hmm. how do you find that? How do you pull that out of yourself to be able to say, I need to to not just draw the piece, but but write the piece in a way that, that maybe is funny or socially appropriate for what you're trying to do when your mind isn't there because of other things? Uh, you have to uh, put it down and go do something else. If, if you're not into it, If I, I usually do my idea thinking in the morning, first thing after coffee. Because... Um, uh, you're fresh. I find myself fresher that at that time. You know, you have bad weeks where nothing seems funny. You, you know, you, I get angry that they didn't buy things, something from me for several weeks. Like, why didn't you buy those? So you, you have these dialogues with yourself, and you have to just put that away and make it a. And remember that you chose to do this, and that you don't have to submit if you don't want to. Nobody's forcing you to do this, and that's how you get through it. Uh, and you just. 
A lot of it is play. The best way of getting at good ideas is play, being playful. Um, and I'm not talking about political necessarily, but sometimes with political stuff, and this is not New Yorker so much, I have a sense of what I what I can draw about and what I can't personally. And if there's something I know I want to draw about, like the uh, Chauvin trial about the murder of George Floyd is happening now. And I don't, I, I can't do a cartoon about that, but I can do drawings about it. Like I did a live drawing about it yesterday. Right. I think it's helpful to know, and you know, maybe this goes to a question about, you know, do you surround yourself with some type of routine beyond coffee? Mm. <laughs> like you, under- you understand, maybe it's all that's all that's needed. Um, <laughs> but you know, that you have a routine where you sit down in your work area with a cup of coffee, and mm-hmm. you turn yourself on to say, this is I'm working now, right? Mm-hmm. You do have a bit of a routine that you go through every day. And yes, doing that. yes, I try to keep to it because I know, like, for example, okay, so we submit our cartoons on a Tuesday. And we hear about whether they bought one or not on a Friday. So we're at we're at Thursday right now, I feel I need to do it's already the afternoon, so I probably won't get to it. But I should have done some drawings this morning. I didn't. I had so many emails to answer, some of the things to, to get to. I just didn't do it. I should. I should have. But um, because I. But I will tomorrow morning, and then Saturday morning, and then Sunday morning, and then Monday morning, and now hopefully I'll have enough cartoons by Tuesday to send in. Because if I wait until after I like Friday, we hear in the afternoon. It's all a big. You have to sort of figure out your psyche and how you can interact with your work and the and the magazine you you hope to sell to. So if I hear, if I, by five o'clock, if I don't hear from the New Yorker that I sold one, I start getting kind of cranky and <laughs> it's harder to come up with ideas when you're cranky. So right. it's good to get some under your belt before Friday, if you can. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. And then if you get one, if you get a call or an email from the New Yorker, then mm-hmm. you have a nice dinner, right? Yes, on Friday right. or Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> get sushi takeout, I think. <laughs> nice. So my husband said, next time you sell, we're going to get sushi takeout. That's awesome. Do you have trouble separating kind of lies of the artist from lies of the employee? Because I feel like if you're an artist, cartoonist, painter, whatever the case, that that's really part of your soul. That's part of who you are. It is a profession, but I think it runs deeper than that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so my question is, when you are like, did you put time aside just to create for the sake of creating? Or do you always feel that when the uh, Apple pencil hits your iPad, or the pencil hits a pad that you're working? Great question. I don't, you know, I'm having trouble answering that. <laughs> Maybe because I, it's all one person. It's all part of me. It's all, it's all uh, it's hard to separate. I, there was a period when I for a while, I was my pastime was painting. So I would do I did landscape paintings with watercolor, very loose, and then I did some abstract canvas paintings. And that was I intentionally made it different than my cartoons because I I didn't want them I didn't want them to be connected. I haven't done that in a while. But I think when I sit down to doodle to come up with ideas, I, I am part of me is thinking this is heading hopefully towards an, a cartoon idea. But but the initial doodles really are just me doodling. You know, I don't know if you're Listeners, well, they probably don't know this, but my husband, Michael Maslin, is also a cartoonist. And so for The New Yorker, that's how we met. And um, he approaches it just as play. He really just sits down at his desk and he just draws things that he wants to draw. He's abusing himself instead of putting pressure on himself to come up with an idea. Um, so it's a real pleasure for him to sit there and just make create little scenes and little characters and people doing stuff. And uh, he's, he's, a, he's really good at that. So I'm a little more distractible, I think. <laughs> Can you maybe talk about, like, in this internet age where we've got so much social media and uh, various streaming platforms and, and so on and so forth, can you highlight what you think the importance of cartooning is in this kind of age that we're in? 
and, and maybe that how that's changed mm-hmm. from when you first started? Mm-hmm. It's a complicated question because the cartoons have changed. The reception of cartoons has been has shifted. You mentioned Charlie Hebdo, but before that, there was the Danish cartoon controversy, which if anybody wants to read about it, there's a Wikipedia page about it. Okay, I'll provide a link to that. Wherein we can see that cartoons are not always received. I mean, we knew this. People, people say, oh, I don't find that funny, but my husband loves that. Or everybody looks at cartoons differently and they are received differently. So so cartoons are more complicated than we, we originally uh, admitted, I think, when I was starting out. But they're still necessary, and they're so. And the problem is, many, many magazine, many newspapers and magazines have stopped using them. But people love cartoons because a) we need to laugh, and b) in terms of social causes or politics, social issues, cartoons are a great way to bring something to light. You know, because many times people won't take the trouble to read an article about whatever it is, um, but they'll they're drawn to a cartoon. They want to see what what it says and they they'll get something from it hopefully either they'll disagree with you or they'll they'll see there's another side to it or they'll agree with you and be happy or you know so i don't know people love cartoons and so why not we should really have more of them and i wish newspapers weren't so frightened of them so if someone's listening is thinking about being a cartoonist you would still recommend going that direction and being aggressive about it and pursuing that career yeah i guess <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a it's a hard life because there's not many, and that's also a different. Because when I started out, you had the New Yorker to shoot for, but then you also had many other magazines that use cartoons, like National Lampoon, Cosmopolitan, Working Woman, uh, Audubon, Gourmet. They all use cartoons, so you could can't make a living with just that. So we would all do, we would all do illustration jobs, teach stuff like that. Most cartoonists can't make a living just drawing cartoons for the New Yorker. We all have to do something different. So becoming a cartoonist and now is difficult. And now um, it's even harder, I think, because the web is making, it pays less. I know that the New Yorker pays their, for online cartoons, less than the print cartoons. Um, and that's hmm. online for writers is even cheaper. That is less money. So it's a harder way to go. But yeah, if you want to be a cartoonist, you probably will find a way to do it. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of explore the live draws that you do, mm-hmm. because I think that is, that's how I found you. Mm-hmm. And when I was asking you earlier about how do you separate lies of the artist from lies of the employee, you could see the joy that you have when you do li- the live draws. Uh. And I don't know if that's the way you always draw, but you're having a conversation with a bunch of people that can't speak <laughs> audio, <laughs> right? <laughs> And you acknowledge everybody, but you're conversing with all of us watching you. And you're just, it's, it, you're just, you're telling a story and you're drawing and you're sharing your, your art and your skill with us. And I just think that's wonderful. And I, I think, was it you that coined the, the phrase about this, you know, digital visual journalism, which, mm-hmm. so maybe if we can talk about the live drawing and when did that start for you? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can talk about the Grammys and mm-hmm. and the Oscars yes, and all mm-hmm. this other stuff that you've done. Yeah. Because I've tried urban sketching, but this is at a whole new level. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe like, when did live drawing start for you? I should really get an answer to the specific date, but I think now it's probably six years ago, Okay. 2015, maybe. Yeah, that would be six years. I was given an iPad, and I was watching the State of the Union one that night that it was on, and I started drawing with that app paper, which I discovered. I started drawing uh, what I saw on the TV, and with that app, you can put the drawing out immediately on social media. So I would quickly, with this app, draw what I was seeing, like 
that I found amusing or that I found interesting. Like, you know, at the, at the beginning of the State of the Union, this this guy comes out and says, Mr. Speaker, I President of the United States or whatever his words are. And I would draw him really quickly because he ha- has to be quick. And um, like these Thurber-like quick things with a dash of color and um, put it out on Twitter immediately. And the people who follow me would see it. And I I think that it caught on. I mean, the people, I, I noticed that people really kind of enjoyed it or drawing something, like the guy's tie is a really weird color or a woman's dress or Obama hugging Ginsburg, uh, one state of the union. I drew that. So it's like capturing something that's happening in real time and putting it out on social media and people who are also watching the same thing, reacting to my drawings. And sometimes I'd put a snarky comment or a comment in the tweet. I just noticed that people really enjoyed it. And uh, I started doing it more with every, with it, with, Things that were, I knew we were all watching as a country or sometimes a world, like the Oscars. I did that from my television set. And then I, I somehow started to get people to pay me for it. I got <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it started as a joyful thing, a thing that I was just doing for fun. And, and that's a good way to start something. And I, someone, a friend or a, an acquaintance helped me get at the Oscars, get at the publicist for the Oscars. And he loved the idea. So I flew out to LA and I, and I was there on site drawing on the red carpet, drawing book before the, the day of the Oscars. And I didn't get to go. I never have gotten to go in the theater. No media is allowed in the theater per se, but uh, actually in the theater. But I got to go in the media room where they come after they win the Oscars. So it just, it's like a, it's a reportage of what's happening. And I don't just draw the celebrities. I draw behind the scenes things that people may not notice. You know, a photographer might notice it, but I notice it with my iPad. I've done all kinds of weird things. I do conferences sometimes, women's conferences. I did the Women's March. I And then the DNC in 2016, the Democratic National Convention, I really wanted to go because I'd never been, of course. And I approached assistant to Nora O'Donnell, whom I'd met once before, who was uh, with CBS at the time, to see if they'd want somebody to like me doing this. And the the social media producer was a really, is a really creative guy. And he loved the idea. So they hired me to go to the DNC to draw that. Uh, And then just various other things happened. And the New Yorker published some of them for a while. They don't do it anymore. They don't, they don't want my live drawings anymore. So you have to keep reinventing yourself like, okay, they don't want it. So I'll try to find somebody else that might want it. Do you have a a story or two about the live draws where, you know, you're doing something and uh, it was a because you know, I, I'm I'm going to equate it to urban sketching, but it's it's quite kind of removed. But you know, where somebody comes up to you and asks you questions about what you're doing, or any interesting interactions with people as you've done these live draws. The funny thing about you're working on an iPad is people don't really know what you're doing. They don't assume that you're drawing. They think huh. like there's true. When I was on the red carpet, somebody pointed out that there's a photograph of me in the background. Oh no, they put it on Twitter. Somebody put this on Twitter. The photograph of me in the background with my iPad and, and they, they said, who's that mysterious lady with the, with the iPad? So people don't really know what you're doing. And I like that. I don't really want to be called on, although if they do, that's fine. So anyway, that morphed into, uh, since during the pandemic, I couldn't go anywhere, of course. It dawned on me in March last year, and I'd done this before. I'd taken my phone and put it over my hand and drawn with my pen nib and recorded it and put it out on social media. And people really love seeing people draw. You probably noticed that, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, they just love watching that hand draw. And um, so I knew that it was something, but in March last year, I realized I could, I should do this now during the pandemic. And so what I would do uh, for Instagram TV, my account, I would uh, every day draw something about the pandemic, not a cartoon, 
per se, but in my cartoon style, but just something that's going on, like healthcare workers, the frontline people, the, the delivery people, the cashiers, you know, masks, you know, sometimes it was funny and playful. Sometimes it was deadly serious, you know, people dying of, of this uh, virus and just talking about what's, what we're all thinking about as I draw. It was, it, it was helpful to me to do that every day. And I got this little community on Instagram right. that followed me all the time. Yeah. And that's what I was going to ask you a bit later was, and it's great that you've answered it now, but is is how has COVID impacted you? And obviously you built a strategy to kind of maintain your mental mm-hmm. wellness by, mm-hmm. you know, creating the opportunity for community mm-hmm. and sharing openly, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think uh, cartoons are about sharing. They're about communication. They're about connecting with other people. And that's what I started out doing as a kid, little child, and uh, I still do that. So when I had to stay home, I... I still needed to reach out to people, which is what social media is. And I enjoy social media, but this is on another level with drawing uh, and video. And do you, have you ever found this hard being an introvert, being near the red carpet or DNC or whatever the case? Do you feel that because it's an iPad that, as you said, that you're a bit protected, people don't know what you're doing, that they leave you alone? Or do you ever think, oh, no, what am I doing here? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny. I guess you equate my being shy as a kid with being an introvert. I don't know what I am, really. I don't know. Okay. Are you an introvert? Uh, I'm an introvert, but I I act as an extrovert sometimes. So uh-huh. I will maybe dress differently. Um, I will tend to speak my mind, but I find it exhausting. <laughs> like if, you know, even after our conversation today, uh, I will feel exhausted at the end just because mm. the interaction with, with humans mm-hmm. is, um, <laughs> I would ra- rather interact with nature. Just, and it's, it's just my nature. I've never been, I, I remember I, I had birthdays where I would cry because everyone would come over for my birthday, <laughs> all my aunts and uncles, and I would cry in my room because there's too many people in the house. <laughs> I don't think I'm that bad. In fact, I don't think I'm an introvert, but okay. um, I, I did when I was little. I didn't. I was terrified that an adult would talk to me. Like I wouldn't. I didn't want to have to, to speak to anybody. Yeah, I think I was maybe translating that idea of shy to introvert. So I, maybe I shouldn't have done that. That's in, okay. In, assuming no. you're an introvert. No, no, no that's yeah. okay. Uh, because I was very much on camera with my drawing um, when I worked for CBS. I was be in the green room, which was attached to the set for CBS This Morning, which is their everyday morning show. And I would be in the green room in this glassed in room. So they would be, the cameras could sometimes cut to the green room and I would be in there with my iPad and uh, they would put the camera behind my back and video what I was doing, you know, and I drew Oprah Winfrey uh, sitting across from me when she's sitting there. And uh, that's a lot of pressure, but I, I think I did a pretty good job. She, she seemed to like it. <laughs> but <laughs> that's she's, pretty cool. She's a, and there were other celebrities too. That was really fun. That was a fun job, but it was quite, I mean, I, the problem is I didn't really want to talk to the, the celebrities so much. I was scared of them, but I loved being there. I loved drawing them. I loved, it's again, it's just making people happy because my, my drawings of people are not, they're not real caricatures. They're just impressions of people. So generally speaking, they like them or they, at least they didn't say they didn't like them. And so is that a different mindset for you where you're at the Grammys or the Oscars? I mean, obviously it is a different mindset, but mm-hmm. how do you get yourself to that space to think I've got to capture Brad Pitt who's coming now, um, <laughs> where, and I think you've talked about this previously, where, you know, the real, I'm not going to say superpower, because I'm not sure those would be your words, but I would say the superpower of, of a cartoonist is that you take the time to react, right? That you're taking an opportunity to consume and then react. 
So how do you separate the cartoonist in that respect with regard mm. to somebody who's documenting something in real time? That's great. Yeah, my cartoons are generally more m- mindful that way. Well, like on the red carpet, you have to react quickly because they walk by so fast. And sometimes you have to make a mental note as you as you see them approaching. I would my spot was often at the at the turn where they would make a turn to go into the building and uh, mm-hmm. so I could see them coming or you would hear the crowd getting wild because you see Brad Pitt walking down and um, just have to notice their identifiable features and and the color of what they're wearing uh, the style of what they're wearing like I know I was on the red carpet one year and and Mer- I saw I saw that Meryl Streep was coming and it didn't have much time and and the more famous the celebrity the faster they walk <laughs> okay although I think it's changed I think it's changed it was different last year because Al-, Al Pacino was just hanging around so I got a lot of time to draw him hanging around <laughs> with them um, with Robert De Niro that was like so bizarre <laughs> it's like inches from those two. Oh man but uh, Meryl Streep was whisking by, and I didn't get to see her face at all. I just saw the back of her, of her, and her hair, which is very identifiable. And I knew her dress style was sleeveless, and it was blue. And so I just drew. That was that was the fun thing was that I just drew this whisking woman who, uh, and with with people around her. So I drew the her blue dress and her hair, and then just the other people in uh, in just pen line in, in the iPad single black line. It's stressful, It's but it's kind of an adrenaline type thing, you know? So do you feel that you need both? You need that reactive, thoughtful cartoon side versus this kind of live draw? Do you, do you think both are part of who you are now? Yeah. Did you stop either? I mean, no. <laughs> okay. So even with the live drawing um, out in the world, I will use the, the thoughtful side because it's not all celebrities. It's, it's not, I try to choose things that I think are meaningful for the situation and that might be like reporting. It's like reporting. It's like visual journalism. Like I'm at the women's March in, in Washington and what do I see and what, what is the essence of what's going on here? Or the DNC, the same thing. Or I went to the inauguration, which was really interesting being I'm a liberal, but going to Trump's inauguration, I didn't get close to the stage or anything, but I was there right. on the mall and I got to draw these people in red hats that were so excited to be there. And so their guy won. And it was, so it was interesting. I, mm-hmm. you know, I tried to be, when I was working for CBS like that, I had to be um, nonpartisan. Right. That, that's fine. So you do live draws on Instagram. You're on haps.tv mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a new kind of streaming platform. I yeah. created an account, but I've done nothing there. How's oh, that experience I'll been? Find you. It's really interesting. And I'm, I'm not sure what's the future of that app. I don't know where it's going. It's a it's in beta. It's it's a startup, and they approached me in April of last year or so to be one of their verified journalists because they were started by a group of journalists, former journalists in mainstream media, who wanted to to do a streaming app for journalists, and they created it. So it was it was that was the first incarnation, and now it's more other types of people. So there's chefs, there's other artists, there's singers there's uh i don't know uh, people travel people just doing doing tours of paris or wherever they live i'm not sure it's the right fit for me but we'll see i do live stream with them like yesterday i did the uh, chauvin trial about uh george floyd i i drew something about that i I, generally it's political for me for that awesome Mm -hmm. so i'll provide links to all of this so people can find Mm -hmm. you and and watch you as you stream Mm -hmm. so i wanted to get into kind of the um I mean, you talked about the Women's March and, and women's rights. I want to explore that a little bit in your work with that. And 
um, what, what kind of work have you done? What at what point did that? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's it seems like an obvious question, but at what point did you feel that you had the bandwidth to make an impact? And mm. that it's a great question. I think it was a, it was an evolving thing. You know, I don't really know. There was one point where I decided I was I was going to be a feminist cartoonist or draw feminist issues. There's a combination of things like when. Um, when I was researching for my book, Funny Ladies, which is a history of the women cartoonists for The New Yorker, I just got more and more thinking, that I, I sh- you know, I should be doing cartoons about women's rights. Men do cartoons about women's rights, and they're, that's totally fine. That's great. But I'm a woman, and I, I have a different perspective as a woman, so I, I feel like I should do that. And also, uh, that was part of the after the 9-11 thing, I, I really wanted to uh, to do more things to help talk about issues important to me. And feminism was one of them at, the t- at that time. Something increasingly, uh, something I looked at seriously. Also, the increase in the internet, the, uh, the rise of the internet made it so that we could learn more and more quickly about women's problems around the world. And so I was heavily influenced by what I read about other parts of the world and um, started doing more and more cartoons about that. And there was a, uh, it still is around, a uh, aggregate of cartoons called The Nib online. It's called, uh, that's thenib.com. And um, the editor there invited me to be a part of that where you, a group of cartoonists do cartoons about politics. And uh, I, I started doing more and more political cartoons about women's rights around the world. And he was a really good editor, helped, helped me um, push myself to be a more vocal in my opinions about women's rights. And I did some tough cartoons in, in those times too. But I it was very meaningful to me to get at subjects that nobody had gotten at before, I think, um, in terms of women. Yeah, I think it's, um, th- there's so much we can do no matter what profession we have. Um, and art for me is is a hobby. I, I work mm-hmm. as a software developer during the day. Mm-hmm. But I, I was just, when I had read that your impact on that and, and what you've taken up and what you've done with all of that, I just, I wanted to thank you because oh. I've got two teenage daughters. And, you know, one of them is going into science. And science is early on, there's a lot of women in science. But, you know, once you get into the PhD level, it's not so kind. Mm. Uh, My oldest, this is what she wants to do. She wants to go into science. Great. And I just think it's great that that you're doing that. And I'm hopeful that, you know, for the person listening, if it's not cartoons that you want to focus on, maybe this message of, of being able to take your skills Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever they may be, whether it's writing or cartoons or mm-hmm. or digital work, and maybe being able to to amplify the voice uh, of those who need it. And mm-hmm. is there more? I mean, do you feel that we're in a better place? And where do you think we need to spend the time and the effort at this point? Like, what can we be doing better? And I know that's a huge <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's so interesting. I've been around for a while. I've watched the feminist movement ebb and flow in popularity, mainstream popularity. Like when I, in the middle of my career, if you recall, I think you, you probably are old enough to recall that uh, the word feminist was not a popular word. It was uh, you were, it was not something that you admitted to necessarily. So that's, it's, things have changed a lot um, in that, in that, that's a very s- small example, but mm-hmm. things are better for American women, but not, obviously not as you describe your daughter's desires still not not there at all um, but I we just have to keep constantly chipping at I think the one of the good things about the me too movement is that it's it's opening people up to talking more openly about what what women 
experience because it was so often unspoken and just between it was just between women griping about what the system is doing to them. So I think just talking about it and drawing about it. And it's funny because when I was doing those cartoons, I was talking, I was referring to about abuse and being underpaid. There's a couple of pretty strong cartoons. I did a bunch about rape. Since then, those were done maybe eight years ago. More and more women are drawing cartoons and men about subjects like that. And so that's good. They're, it's more open. And so I've I've eased off on them somewhat because I didn't really know where my place was anymore. Um, but I'm, I'm coming back to it now because I think we still need to definitely need to, to talk about it more and talk openly with our allies, our male allies about it more. When I was starting those cartoons, it was a, a decision on my part because I, for, for 20 years, I had been drawing just cartoons, New Yorker cartoons about Americans. And I, I thought, well, I can't draw about a woman who lives in Pakistan, because I have no idea what that's like. I can't presume to know what her life is like. I can't do that. But then I thought, well, what are we having? We must have something in common other than our anatomy. Um, and then I realized that we all have a certain level of, of harassment or inequality and different levels. So what we're experiencing here is the same in Pakistan, only tenfold, or I don't know. And uh, that's what I could draw about. And that's what I did. So I think you're right. I think I really what you're saying is, is wonderful. It doesn't mean you have to be an activist all the time, but you can do something, some, whatever your profession is, whatever your hobby is, you can do a little something. And I put it out on the internet right. <laughs> and uh, and share it with people. You know, I think it's, and, and this kind of maybe extends beyond the, the artist or the creative side of the podcast, but I think it is being mindful about the equity. You know, my uh, my lead developer is is a woman and she's brilliant. and I'm so thankful to have her on my team, but the, uh, and, and I always try to make an effort when I look at guests that I balancing things out mm-hmm. and I, I try really hard with that. And I know that I come from a generation where this wasn't, you know, I'm 54. So I was at that point where, you know, I, I remember all this stuff and I was raised around the differences with that where, you know, my mom stayed at home and that's what she did. You know, she mm-hmm. gave up her nursing career. And eventually went back to it. She passed away when I was 17, but mm. she she did come back to it. And so mm. I think th- there is a lot that we can be doing, just small things to be able to to say that we're equal and we're, we're on this journey together. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just, when I saw everything that you've done, I, I never, I guess for me, I, I never really thought about it, that it is, it's, it's everywhere. And so mm-hmm. it's in cartooning, it, mm-hmm. it's it's in politics, mm-hmm. it's 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 everywhere, and we mm-hmm. all have an opportunity to make a difference. So mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. I'm really glad that we had kind of the chance just even to highlight that component uh, in this podcast. Yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, thank you. So, Liza, you have a new book coming out. Do you want to share a bit more information yeah, about that? Thanks. Um, it's called Very Funny Ladies. It'll be out in the fall, and it's actually an updated edition of my my book Funny Ladies, which came out 15 years ago. And it's um, it's a history, actually, of the women cartoonists that worked for and, and still do work for The New Yorker. And much to my surprise, when I began the research for this book, there were women in the first edition. There was a woman in the first edition of The New Yorker in 1925. So it was a great, fascinating year that I took to, to research that. And what's what's so exciting about this new book is that there are so many more women drawing cartoons for the New Yorker now. When I started at the magazine, there were just four of us. And now there are equal number of men and women, which I don't have the exact numbers. They, the New Yorker couldn't give them to me for some reason. But um, 
I would say 50, 50. So 50 women and 50 men drawing cartoons for the New York. And that's exciting. And that's, uh, that's what I write about. So there's an additional chapter uh, about the new women. I spent the pandemic interviewing many of them via Zoom. And uh, they're, they're a much more diverse group as well. Emma Allen is the cartoon editor, and she's trying to increase uh, not only the gender numbers, but the, the diversity numbers. So, And she's doing so. And excitingly, the, the forward is written by Emma Allen and David Remnick, who's the senior editor. I was very excited about that. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So is it? It's a mix of stories as well as cartoons and, and work as well. Yes, it's a it's a it's a history. So it it chronicles who who these women were. I got as much information as I could about the women that have that have passed away, and um and their work is in the in the magazine as well. Mm-hmm. And so that comes out in the fall. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we'll have to make sure to keep an eye out for that. Thank you. When it does come out, please let me know, okay. and I'll provide an update in the podcast just to remind people that it's out and where they can find it. So. Thank you. Okay, that's great. awesome. Thank you. What would you tell a ten-year-old Liza if you were to go back and tell her about what she's going to do and what she's going to accomplish? Uh-huh. What advice would you give her? I would tell uh, myself, my former self, um, to have confidence in your opinion and believe that you're just as smart as anybody else. That your your voice is is as valuable as anybody else. I, I spent too many years worrying about other people's opinions. I mean, it's important to do that, but being scared to speak up because I thought I didn't know enough. I think um, that's what I would tell her. So to speak up. That's awesome. Awesome advice. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so if you had a chance to have a, have lunch with a person who's who's either living or dead, who would that be? I'll just tell you the first person that comes to mind. And this is mm-hmm. somebody that uh, I admire. And she's not in my field, but I've always saw her as an influence in, in a way is um, Jane Goodall, who, uh, and I've read all of her books, and she is a quiet, persistent, humorous activist, and she stuck to her conviction at what she wanted to do, and what she, what her motivation was, was uh, deep and honorable. So I just love her, and she's quiet, too. I, I'm a quiet person, and I sometimes I think quiet people don't get the recognition, although she does, did, of course. But um, she didn't take no for an answer. She just kept going. But I just really admire her. I, I love that. Thank I love you. That, uh, that choice. That's a really good one. Thank you. So I always ask my guests for a bit of homework mm-hmm. for the listener to be able to walk away and, and uh, engage with something that brings the podcast home for them. So I'm wondering what homework you would have for the listener. I would uh, get a sketchbook, although you don't have to have a sketchbook, but I think um, that would be an interesting way to do it. And doodle, make yourself doodle or draw, doodle, not not draw, not draw, render anything realistically, but get, get at your imagination and draw every single day for a month. Mm-hmm. See what, see what see what comes out. <laughs> and so for doodling, would it be what's around you, what's in your head? Would you, and so when you're drawing, are you looking at a complete scene or are you just drawing like a dog and, and maybe a tree or would you, mm-hmm. how, but, how would you think would be the both? I guess both, both. Okay. But I don't think, I, I, my, in my mind, I had the, the assignment to be not rendering um, what you see, but rendering what's coming out of your brain. Okay. Mm-hmm. Huh. I've got a few sketchbooks as, as an artist. We tend to be collectors mm-hmm. as well. So yeah. maybe. <laughs> and they're, they're often half filled, which is really annoying. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. Like, so you're the same way you've got your working materials and you've got, you know, 50 or 60 empty sketchbooks and a mm-hmm. bunch of pencils and pens. Um, is, is that accurate? Uh, not that many, but I okay. have, like I had this one sketchbook that I used for my ideas 
gathering every week, which, you know, the doodling and the right words. It's, mm-hmm. a, can- it's a Canson uh, sketchbook uh, with a little flap that magnetic flap. It's really nice. So I have, I have a new one waiting in the wings, but I don't have a lot of those, but I have all these little, little ones that I think I'm going to bring this with me and I'll just write my ideas down or make notes. And then I, I do that. And then I forget that I have it and it just gets half filled. (laughs) And I just, the other day I was looking at this sketchbook or this little notebook and I thought, what was that about? I have no idea (laughs) who I was talking to. Those are notes for some phone conversation. I have no idea what it was, but uh, (laughs) that's good. Anyway. So, before letting you go, I just wanted to ask you where people can find you online. Thanks. Uh, uh, it's at um, my website, lizadonnelly.com. And on my Medium column, Medium is a online blog platform, which is really kind of cool. That's where uh, I put all my political cartoons and my political writing and some feminist writing there. That's at lizadonnelly.medium.com. And uh, Twitter is at Liza Donnelly. And Instagram is at Liza Donnelly. And Facebook is the same. (laughs) And LinkedIn, I have them all. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, thanks. I will include links to all of that in the show notes. So if you're listening to this podcast, please check out the show notes and uh, you'll be able to find Liza everywhere. Yeah, so I wanted to thank you so much. I was hoping to learn about cartooning and your career. And I learned so much more. And I walked away from this conversation just in awe of the knowledge you've been able to share with me and the time you took aside to do so. And I just want to thank you so much. I really, really appreciated this. Thank you so much for having me. I I found it really interesting too. Great, deep conversation. Awesome. I'm going to be uh, tuning into some of your live draws and Mm -hmm. uh, commenting along. And I hope to see more of your work online. Thank you so much, Liza. Thank you so much, Mike. Have a good day. Bye. Show notes, including links to everything Liza and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 50. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, share, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This will surface the podcast for others to enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod.